Good morning, Hagerstown Church. My name is Josh McLean. You've already been welcomed, but I want you to know that I also want to extend a welcome. I love each and every one of you, and it's a privilege to gather with you this morning to open God's Word. Uh, as we uh, get ready to turn our attention to Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 52, I want to invite Hubtown kids, uh, grades, uh, not grades, but uh, yellow, st- or not, yellow's already gone, blue station and gray station to exit now. If you wonder what the exodus sounded like, it probably sounded a little bit like this as they left Egypt. Uh, Now, this is not Egypt. I would argue that that is Egypt. But anyway, uh, I would say this is the promised land, but we won't start a fight this morning. So, Hubtown kids, you know where you're at. If you're new around here, uh, this is uh, ages 3 to 5. You're going to be over here. If you're ages uh, 6 up to grade 5, you're going to be heading this way. I want to just share with you, church, Uh, a little bit about what the Grace Station is going to be learning today. Remember, this is not just them go and do their thing, but it's our job together to help people find and follow Jesus. I know that you're that you, uh, you want to be a part of that. I know that you want to accomplish that. That's one of the reasons why you're part of this church. And so one of the ways that you can do that is seriously by, by following up with these kids, writing them a letter, sending them a postcard, giving them a phone call and asking them, you know, after church or whatever, hey, asking them this question. This is what they're learning today. How many persons are there in God? How many persons are there in God? Uh, we've talked about this, uh, not at, uh, at uh, we could definitely spend some more time talking about it, but we've talked about this at length here in this, this space here over the last few weeks. But there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Ask the kids, follow up with them about that. We don't want any modalists in this church. And uh, as we, you know, just come through St. Patrick's Day, right? Okay. <clears throat> just kidding. If you have any questions about that, you can ask those who are laughing. I'm sure you'd love to be a part of an inside joke at some point in your life. So this morning, we're going to turn our attention, without any further ado, to Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 52. It's where, by God's providence, we're found this morning. We've taken a lot of time to work through the gospel of Mark. Really, what's taken place in Jesus' life over the last five days has taken us several months. It's been the week of the Passion We left Jesus Thursday night. Last Sunday, we left him Thursday night praying there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Really, in the last few uh, few days of Jesus' life, he's experienced the triumphal entry, which we looked at months ago. Here he's welcomed by the crowds there in Jerusalem as he uh, comes up to the top of the, the hill. There, coming through Bethany, seeing Jerusalem to the south. Jesus comes in, he cleanses the temple. We looked at several of his really intense teachings. He foretells the destruction of the temple. That very uh, same phrase or that statement that he makes, he'll be, uh, it'll come back to, uh, to get him in some sense. We've read and worked through a plot that was devised to capture and kill Jesus. We see it unfolding before our eyes, even more so this morning as we look at Mark 14, 43 to 52. We see Judas entering into league with those who have devised this plot. We see the Passover observed just a few weeks ago. Jesus reinstitutes some of the th- or, or uh, changes some of the, uh, the, the, the ideas of the Passover. And that same meal of the Passover, Jesus foretells that he'll be betrayed in a serious, deadly heinous way he goes on to tell the rest of the disciples about they're all of them denying and abandoning him it's been a quite a week it's been quite a few months for us quite a week for jesus we ended last week with jesus praying in the garden of gethsemane and remember as he prayed great drops of blood anguish Sorrow poured from his very body. Mark 14, 43 to 52. Jesus has finished praying. The disciples are asleep. He wakes them up, says that his betrayer is at hand, and 43. And immediately, 
while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. When he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, If you come out against a robber, swords and clubs to capture me, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed with him, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth, and he ran away naked. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word this morning. Father, we come again to you now, and we ask that you would use this text to see Jesus more clearly. Father, may as a result of our time together, may each of us love Jesus more precious than before. Father, may the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of Jesus' glory and grace. Father, we need this so desperately, and we come to you asking you, because you alone can accomplish this. We ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The structure of the text or our time together this morning will uh, lead me to do this. We're going to work through, and almost in commentary fashion, these few verses. We'll make some observations, working quickly through, helping to establish and set the stage. When that's complete, I'll give you a main idea that I think is really just rising to the top from this text after we've worked through it. And I'll make two observations specifically about the life of Jesus And then we'll end making much of Jesus. Does that sound like a plan? And you guys are quiet today. Does that sound like a plan? Or should I just ball it up and go another route? No, let's let's get to work here. Verse 43, it says, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came. Really, this immediately, it's not uncommon for Mark to use it, and yet it still has meaning. It's not lost its value just because Mark likes to use that word. We all know people that overuse certain words. I know there's a couple that I have preference towards. But Mark is saying here, he's emphasizing something. Jesus had stood up from his prayer. He went back to his disciples and he said to them, hey, it's over, guys. The next act is upon us. Arise, my betrayer is here. Mark wants us to know that as soon as Jesus said that, immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us a great deal. But one thing that it tells us is that Jesus knew, further further established what we already saw last week. He knew what would take place. As soon as he said it, immediately it took place. He goes on to say, Mark, in his account here, he says that Judas came. And he highlights for us, in case we've forgotten, that Judas is one of the twelve. Well, why would Mark so painstakingly make, it, make us aware that Judas was one of the twelve. Of course, we, we already knew that. In this same chapter, in verse 10, Mark made sure that we knew. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray them. Well, there's a couple reasons I might offer as to why Mark is so clear that Judas is one of the twelve. One, there were other Judases that followed Jesus. And we don't know many Judases anymore, right? Most people uh, are not planning to name their child Judas. I don't think it's a, that great of an idea to do so. Some of you are, are thinking of marriage. Maybe you, you've just become married, or maybe you're hoping to become pregnant. Let me say, please, don't use Judas as a name. There are other Judases, and Mark wants us to know, though, this is one of the 12. Furthermore, I think he wants us to really feel the weight This was not just one of the random Judases that lived in Jerusalem or the surrounding area. This isn't just one of the many, possibly one of the 70 disciples that Jesus sent out. No, this was one of the 12. 
One of the reasons why I think Mark wants us to know time and again that Judas was one of the twelve is because it was so painful that Jesus would be betrayed, not just by a random person, not just by somebody that saw him and knew him. He'll be betrayed by many whose names are not recorded for us. Many of them will be witnesses as we look at the next text. But they weren't one of the twelve. And yet here Judas was. What, how do you think Jesus felt? To be betrayed by one of the chosen. One of the twelve. Don't forget it. Moving on. It says, And, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. It's interesting here that Mark uses the word crowd. The, 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 the word behind that is oxlos. For those, uh, it stands for crowd. Regularly, Mark uses this word to describe what's taking place in the gospel of Mark and in Jesus' life. Fifteen times prior to this particular use of that word, Jesus is with a crowd and never in, under these circumstances. It's always a pleasant experience. When there's a crowd, there's no anger, there's no hostility towards Jesus. But this is the first time that the gospel writer Mark uses this word in a negative sense. And so this time and three more times following, the crowd is hostile to Jesus. And you might say, well, we don't think that this is the same. These aren't the same people. The people in the previous 15 crowds, those were all people that were really excited. Jesus was feeding them, and they were listening to him. And while that's partially true, from our reading this morning, we saw in John 6 that sometimes the crowd wasn't too happy and would leave, right? But Mark is trying to help us see there's a shift taking place in this moment. And it's more than just random people, right? It's not just random people who are there frustrated with Jesus. Maybe they themselves, like Judas, have also received bribes, falsely going to accuse Jesus on the following day. But they're not alone. Along with them in this crowd are temple guards, Roman soldiers themselves. And they've come with Judas. Together they've devised a plan. Judas will make the sign and together this crowd will arrest Jesus as if he is some sort of an evil man. So temple guards, Roman soldiers, false accusers, and even curious onlookers exit the city, enter into Gethsemane, and Jesus meets them there. They've come with the weapons necessary to strike down an insurrection and capture the instigators. Verse 44 it says, now when the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. Some of us wonder at what point in time did Judas become party to this plan? Did he know from the beginning that he would betray Jesus? Was there a point in his life where, in his relationship with Jesus where he was sincere and at what point did it change? We're not exactly sure, but we know this. His betrayal of Jesus was premeditated. And although we know that he was influenced by Satan himself, even fulfilling prophecy, we know of his own free will, of his sinful lust for money, he premeditates betrayal of our Lord and Savior. Notice that Mark in verse 44 doesn't reference Judas by name. He leaves us, never to mention Mark, never to mention Judas again, leaves us with this. Now the betrayer had given them a sign. Verse 45. And when he came, he went up at once to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Some Greek manuscripts have Judas actually saying rabbi twice. And so rabbi, rabbi. We're not really sure which one it was. We know he said rabbi once, potentially twice, which is an endearing way to address somebody. Daddy, daddy. Daniel, Daniel. It's an endearing way. The word translated kiss or kissed 
It's really not just a peck on the cheek as would have been common in those days, but this is really a buttery kiss in a sense. It's an elaborate, prolonged kiss. It's one that would be very pretentious and very obvious, potentially even looking out of the corner of his eye to make sure that those who had come with, with clubs and swords had seen this is the one. Jesus really laid it on with Jesus, and in response, the crowd laid their hands on Jesus. Verse 46, it says, They laid hands on him, and they seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, we don't know from the Gospel of Mark, but we know from the other Gospel writers, the other Gospel accounts, that this, in fact, is Peter. The sword that he had was probably a short one. He's not trying to snip ears or, or, or give people haircuts. Likely aiming to take this man's head off of his shoulders. Probably the one who reached out and first grabbed Jesus. And so Peter there, bold with his companions, takes a swing. Ducks and misses the servant. But what does Jesus do? Well, we don't know from the Gospel of Mark, but Jesus actually rebukes Peter. Actually reaches down and heals this man's ear. Verse 48. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber? Do you think me a robber? You've come with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Why tonight, Jesus wants to know. Why are you coming after me now? You had your opportunity. You wouldn't even have had to walk outside of the city. I was right there. Could have been like a trapped rat. You could have taken me at any time. And yet, why tonight? Why do you come now? Well, Jesus wants them to see. He wants us to see this disproportionate behavior. He had been with them in the open every single day. He had not lied about what his intentions were. He had not held back the truth. And so why were they coming now? He wants them to see that he sees their deception. At any rate, Jesus wanted the Scriptures to be fulfilled because that's the end of verse 49. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. What does Jesus mean by that? This was done that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Well, it, it really brings to mind Isaiah 53, verse 12. It's a prophecy about our Lord and Savior. It says in verse 12 of Isaiah 53, he was numbered with the transgressors. And here tonight we see them coming at him as if he is some sort of a transgressor. This is the way that you would treat an evil, evil man. A robber, a murderer, an insurrectionist. The scriptures were in fact being fulfilled. In fact, if you look at verse 50, it says, And they all left him and fled. Potentially, is there a connection with the Scriptures being fulfilled in that very statement itself? Well, if you look back at verse 27, Jesus cites Zechariah 13.7. He says, when you strike the sheep or the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And here again, yet another prophecy. Not just one that Jesus knew and foretold, but one that was long before given in the Old Testament. Zechariah 13.7. Here's what we know. The word of God will be true. Let God be true and every man a liar. Look at verse 51. It says, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. They grabbed him too. But he left the linen cloth, and he ran away naked. Now many people think that this is Mark himself, and I'm tempted to believe that. I'm tempted to think that this is Mark. It fits. Just the fact that he would be wearing a linen cloth alone is a sign of this guy being well-to-do. And we know that 
Mark's family was well off and that they had a home there in Jerusalem and that Jesus' disciples would frequent that home. They were sympathetic to Jesus' mission. So it's quite possible that this is Mark himself. As a matter of fact, the story kind of goes that potentially Judas had come to the upper room with this band to arrest Jesus there. And maybe Mark, who had not been invited to this prayer service there in Gethsemane, maybe he is laying in bed and he is uh, awakened. Maybe he throws on a sheet and sees, oh man, I'm going to follow this crowd and see what's going on. Potentially that took place, and maybe he's followed along from a distance to see what would take place. Jesus heals the servant's ear. The disciples scatter. And maybe young Mark is captured. At any rate, we don't really know, but Mark, or I'm sorry, but this young man, he escapes. We say, well, what's the primary purpose? What's the reason for that story being included? Is it Mark, is he just trying to save face a little bit? He doesn't want to be known as the streaker. We're not really sure, but what we do know is this. That Jesus is all alone. All the disciples fled. Even this young man. In an effort to make a connection between Jesus saying that this would be, this would be to fulfill Scripture... Potentially this young, the story of the young man running naked, running away naked, maybe it's a fulfillment of Amos 2, 16. Where in the terrible day of judgment, or writing about the terrible day of judgment, the prophet says, he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. Potentially this is a fulfillment of that prophecy itself. The young man thinking, uh, you think of a young man, you think, well, he's in the prime of his life, he's strong. And for somebody that runs away naked, they've lost the fight. They've been defeated. And so all of those, regardless of whether that's the connection or not, we know this, Jesus is alone. Those who are strong, including Peter himself, not a slouch, strong fisherman, armed to the teeth, even he flees. That's this morning's text. Jesus is alone now. At least he's not with people he wants to be around that have good intentions for him. But what we know about Jesus is even though he's alone, he's not running. Everyone else has run. Everyone else that we know and love in this story, they're gone. Jesus is there, but he's still pressing forward. What we see in this text is is that though Jesus sees the danger that's before him, he doesn't shrink back. There in the garden, the betrayer coming to him, and in a sense, he meets him halfway. I'm going to make a hard shift right now. I'm just going to throw a word out there. Make, make many of you feel uncomfortable, maybe even make your skin crawl. Snakes. You either love them or you hate them. If you're right with God, you hate them. (laughs) And if we're honest, most of us actually probably do. At a minimum, we hate being surprised by them. We hate being surprised by snakes. That's me. I don't mind snakes. As long as it's over there and I can see it, I know where it's at. Maybe it's in a cage. I don't mind to look at it if it's there on the road. Maybe I'll creep up to it closer with a stick. Maybe even poke it. But what I don't like is when I don't see the snake and it's slithering between my shoes, suddenly coiled up on the countertop that I happen to be leaning on, right? Am I right? We're all there. Whether you like him or not, you don't want to be surprised by a snake. Most of you, I've I've lost you this morning. You're, You're uncomfortable. Hey, Jesus, Jesus is the hero. He'll save you from the snake. And that's actually what we're looking at right now. Your natural response in the face of fear and as it's connected with a snake would either be to fight or to flight and most of us would walk on water to get away from a snake. Before I share the main idea this morning, I want to just transition with this idea of snakes with two well-known prophecies in connection with Jesus, the Messiah. With creative license, the film, The Passion of Christ, 
It it portrays the serpent in the garden. As Jesus is praying, fervently, the snake begins to slither there as he prays. And really, it's it's a beautiful scene. It harkens back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That intense scene, though, it ends with an excruciating stamp of Jesus' heel. An excruciating stamp of Jesus' heel. And the writhing around of the crushed serpent. It's an artistic hint to what was happening there spiritually in that place. The head of the serpent was about to be crushed. And the heel of the Messiah, of the Deliverer, would also be wounded. And so, would you turn with me? I think it's worth looking at and reading together. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. First book in the Bible, shouldn't be too hard to find. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is what the scriptures say. This is what God gives as his first promise of how he is going to turn back this rebellion, this fall of man. Verse 15. God is speaking. He's speaking to the the woman. He's speaking to Eve. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I'm sorry, he's speaking to the snake, to the serpent, which is the tempter, which is Satan himself. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Speaking of that single offspring of the woman, that one person that the father has in mind in that moment, he says, of him who is the Messiah, who is the deliverer, who is Jesus Christ, he says, he shall bruise your, or he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now none of us, well, maybe a few of us here have a good idea. If you're a doctor, you probably have a good idea. Which is worse? A bruise on your head or a bruise on your heel? One of them is far worse than the other. Jesus here is said, it's prophesied thousands of years before, that he would crush the head. He would bruise the head of the serpent. Here's the idea, though. The Messiah would be wounded, but the serpent would be destroyed. It would be painful, but he would be victorious. Zechariah 13, 7, we alluded to it a while ago. This is what the Old Testament passage says. Zechariah 13, 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. It's the same person. It's the Messiah. Jesus is the great shepherd. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Yahweh, This great shepherd who stands next to him, Yahweh says, strike him. Strike the shepherd. And what does it say? When you strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. And it goes on to say, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. When you think about Jesus there in the garden, when you think about what's taking place, I want you to Think of it in light of these two prophecies. He'll bruise the head of the snake. His heel will be bruised as well. And that when the serpent or when the, the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. So with that in mind, and as we think back and reflect on this text, and really what the Spirit of God wants us to see this morning, I'm going to offer this, this main idea. Just as the scriptures foretold. When everyone else is running away from danger, the Messiah runs to it. When everyone else is running away from danger, the Messiah runs to it. I referenced this text a while ago, around the time of Mark 10, 45, somewhere in there. There's a parallel account here, Luke 9, 51. And it says of Jesus, and when the days drew near for him to be taken up, He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face 
to go to Jerusalem. It's a euphemism. It's a, it's a slang for saying he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because he knew what would take place there. All of the things that we've just listed out and much, much more, Jesus knew and he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Let me ask you this this morning. What would cause Jesus to run toward danger while everyone else is running from it? What would cause him to do that? When everyone else is running from, that he would run towards. I'll give you the answer. It was his love. It was his love for the church. Christian, it was his love for you. And as we look at this text, I really just want to point out, as we transition here, and I won't spend too much time, I want to point out two unmistakable evidences of Jesus' love for the church. I want to give you two this morning. The first is this, that he engaged pain. He knew what was before him, and he didn't shirk away. He engaged the pain. Why? Because he loves the church. Christian, he loves you, and so he engaged the pain. Another way that we can see so clearly an unmistakable evidence of Jesus' love for the church is that he embraced deserters. He embraced deserters. First, let's look at this idea that he engaged pain as a proof of his love for us. Again, knowing what was before him, he set his face to go toward Jerusalem. And they tried to stop him. They, they kind of knew. This is, this is probably where it's going to end. We've heard him talk about this a lot. We're not really excited about this Jesus, do you know that this is not the best time for you to, to go to Jerusalem? It's not. It's just the political climate is just rough. It's not going to end well. Don't go. But he was determined. There in the garden as he's praying, he knew that Judas was close. He knew that he could have escaped him. Do you know that? Jesus could have escaped. Once before and many other times, but once before it's recorded that they desired to take Jesus and to kill him, to throw him off headlong off of a cliff. And it says that he passed right through their midst. It wasn't his time. And yet now it is, and so what does he not do? He doesn't run. He doesn't trip Peter, grab John and throw him down and take off running. Oh, maybe they'll catch him, them and not me, and I can escape and live to die another day. No, that's not Jesus. He could have escaped the pain. But what did he do? Well, again, he met Judas halfway. He went towards the pain. And we looked at it last week. Don't think of Jesus. Oh, he's, he's the Son of God. He's the second person in the Trinity. Pain's not really that bad to him. That's to undo his humanity. Of course this was pain. The same pain that you would face. The same fear the same anxiety. He had the same nerves, made of the same material that you're made of in his humanity. He knew the pain that he would face, and yet he didn't run. But this wasn't the first time that Jesus had become aware of, of these difficulties that were associated with, with his incarnation. We see in his, right as his ministry is beginning, his temptation the suffering that he went through there in the wilderness, as Mark chapter 1 tells us, that he was in the desert for 40 days being tempted by Satan. How many of you think that's a pleasant time? Intense anguish. Very difficult days. What about Matthew chapter 8, verses 20? That Jesus knew poverty. Jesus knew what it was like to go without, to not have the physical things that he needed. He knew when he left heaven above, with all the blessings forevermore at the right hand of the Father that he would come to this earth and not have a bed or a pillow. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus knew pain. He knew what it was like to go without. He knew frustration. John chapter 2 tells us he flipped the tables. He scattered the coins. He was frustrated with people. You think that's a pleasant day? You think Jesus just loved to be angry and flip tables? 
No. He knew weariness. John chapter 4. Jesus is tired from his journey. And what does it say? He sat down by the well. He knew what it was like to walk longer than, you really, than your body really wants to. He knew disappointment. Luke 13. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. There's the name twice, by the way. Endearing. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not, but you were not willing. And Jesus knows disappointment. He knows rejection. John 6 tells us that, right? We already referenced that twice. From that time on, John 6, 66, from this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Well, he's the son of God. He's the second person in the Trinity. What does that really even matter? How would you like that? If one day people hailed you as all that in a bag of chips and the next day they just left you, couldn't care less. Jesus, he knew ridicule, or at least he would. Mark chapter 15, we'll look at that in a few weeks. They struck him again and again. They spit on his face. They mockingly bowed before him. He'll know loneliness. He's getting a taste of it right now in this text as his disciples, as his brothers. And they're not just disciples. Let's not forget. He called them what? Friends. And so he's getting a taste of the loneliness that he'll soon experience to an even far more infinite degree as he declares, my father, or my, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet again, Jesus knew all of these things, all of these discomfort, unpleasurable experiences. He would face each of them when he left heaven and took on flesh. So why would he stop now? Why would he change direction now? Why all of a sudden would pain become the deciding factor that would turn him and cause him to run? He didn't shy away from the pain of the cross he didn't shy, shy away from even the pain of abandonment. And here's the point. Jesus' life was full of pain. So why should yours be any different? Think about that. Jesus' life was full of pain. Why should yours be any different? Now, I'm not encouraging us to, to think of our lives in some sadistic way, loving pain ourselves and loving to see other people in pain. That's not what I'm talking about. Nor is that what the scriptures would encourage. Quite the opposite. We're not to wander around looking for ways to injure ourselves or to injure other people as some way of becoming, in some callous way of becoming more and more like Christ. That's not the point. But what is the point? Many of us, when we make decisions, we decide them by weighing out the level of pain that we anticipate experiencing. If I go this way, if I do this thing, if I start this relationship, if I invite this person over, I might experience some, some pain. And so because of that, I don't like pain, I think I'll go this other route. Maybe in the face of just with disregard of what good would come of it or could come of it or it was even promised to come of it. In the face of pain, we often turn the other way. Well, God wouldn't want me to experience that. We don't find that in the Scriptures. We see quite the opposite. But we look at this idea and we say, will I experience pain if I join a life group? And I don't mean to harp on that, but let me tell you something. If you join a life group, you'll experience pain. Why? It's not super comfortable to give up that time all the time. And besides all that, somebody might have something that they're struggling with that day. They may need to be encouraged. You'll have to stop what you're doing that day and, and join with them in prayer and some sort of encouragement. It's discomfort. It's pain. Whether or not to share the gospel, what kind of pain will this inflict on me? I probably shouldn't. I could lose this friend. I could lose this relationship. I could lose this prestigious uh, a place that I have in the community. If people think me a, a Jesus follower, I should probably just avoid that pain altogether and go another route. 
Maybe in the face of deciding whether or not to offer gentle correction to a brother or sister, you say, this will just be too painful for them. Furthermore, and more importantly, it'll be too painful for me, and so I'll not go that route. I'll not do that thing. I'll not join the church. I'll not become committed. Why? Because that could be painful. I'll not give my life. I'll not share it with these people who are broken, with my neighbors. I'll not become a foster parent. I'll not be involved in that system. Why? Because I just don't think I can handle the pain. It'd be too difficult for me. I don't share any of these things to say that we should do all of those and more. But I share them all to ask you this question. Do you allow pain to be the deciding factor in following Jesus? When you see the pain that it will cause you, do you count the cost and go the other way? It's not what we see in the life of Jesus. If the definition of success in your mind is avoiding all forms of pain, then what, we, what do you make of Jesus' life? Who fell headlong, dove headlong into pain. Instead of choosing pain as the determining factor, what if we allowed obedience to the Father? What if we allowed love for our neighbors? What if we allowed opportunity to be the determining factors? Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 to 40, and this is what he says. Well, this is what it says. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Which is the most important and Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And I love that Jesus goes ahead and tags on another one there just in case the guy's thinking. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You want to see the testament, the, 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 the law and the prophets fulfilled? Love God and love your neighbor. And so how should we live our lives? What does success look like? It looks like this. Do you love God? Keep his commandments. Do you love others? Treat them the way that you would like to be treated. It says nothing of pain, and yet it is included. Remember, Jesus was a man. In fact, he's, he's more than a man, but he's no less than a man. Same flesh that you have the same feelings, the same needs. And yet, he was governed by his love for the Father and his love for others. And when it required obedience to the Father or love for others, when it required pain, he did not shirk away. And in that sense, that's what we're to do. To follow in our master's footsteps. Not to seek out pain, in some foolish way, but to, not, but to not allow pain to deter our obedience to the Father and our love for our neighbor. As we transition here, I want to share this. Most of you know that relationships can be messy, don't you? They can be messy. You want to open your life up to pain, to sorrow, to difficulties, be born into a family, right? Have siblings, right? Both of these things we do not choose ourselves, and yet we find ourselves in these relational experiences experiencing pain, right? And it gets worse. We don't choose those things, but we do choose our spouses, at least in this culture. We choose to have children, we choose to develop deep friendships. And while all of those relationships bring us joy and they bring us more a deeper meaning, they can also be an incredible source of pain and sorrow. And that's what we see in Jesus' life. He opened himself up to his friends. He opened himself up to his disciples. And what happens? Well, they've heard him. They desert him when he needs it. The most. When he needs their presence, they abandon him. And so we see in Jesus' life that he engaged pain. He didn't shrink back, but we also see 
that he embraced deserters. The people that hurt him the most, when he needed them most, they left him. He didn't abandon them. You remember from last week when we, we looked at, or I'm sorry, two weeks ago, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, hey, listen, guys, you're all going to leave me. But, but when that's all said and done, and I'm risen from the dead, I want you to meet me in Galilee, right? We, we spent some time talking about that. He just nonchalantly reminds them that he's going to die. They're all going to leave him. He's like, yeah, but don't forget, meet me in Galilee, right? Pizza, yeah, we'll, we'll hang out. It'll be great. Like nothing ever happened. Of course, it's not nonchalant. You might think, well, again, in his, in his divinity, does he really need us? Does, does it really matter to him? Of course it matters to him. These are his friends. He's not a liar. And yet still, what does he do? Well, he embraces these deserters, these would-be deserters. He shares this meal with them knowing that they don't deserve to be there. We came to this table a few weeks ago and we said, hey, we're reminded as we come to this table that we don't deserve to be here either. We've all in some way, in many ways, deserted Jesus and yet he still embraces us. He still welcomes us here. We don't come to the table because we're worthy. But we, we come to the table because he is worthy. Because he's invited us in. But it still hurt. At his darkest hour, everyone abandons him. And yet what's beautiful is he promises to never, never repay the favor. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews is reminding us that, listen, there's many things in this life that when you face fear, when you face difficulty, when you face sorrow, you may begin to grasp for other things. I need more money. I need more, I need more belongings. And Jesus is reminding us, the Spirit of God is reminding us here, hey, you don't need any of those things. Now, insofar as they remind you of my love and care for you, praise God. But you don't need those things. And so we can say confidently in verse 6, the Lord is my helper. The Lord is near me. What should I fear? What can man do to me? He, he embraces deserters. We may leave him. We may in our weakness and our sinful flesh, we may deny Jesus in some way. We may look to other things to satisfy us, and yet he'll never leave us. Do you see the, the, this, this statement, I'll never leave you or forsake you? Do you see the, the inequity of the gospel? Do you see that? It's, just, it's not fair. Though we fail him, though we will fail him, he promises to never fail us. It's beautiful. At the heart of the gospel is this beautiful phrase, double imputation. Double imputation. To impute is to ascribe or attribute to, to, to count as. Double imputation would mean that it's happening twice. Two times something is being imputed, right? What does that even mean? Well, it's describing what took place at the cross. Your sin was ascribed or imputed to Jesus. He paid for it. He paid your sin debt. He's treated as if he committed the crimes that you committed. And not just the, the sins that you committed, Christian, but the, the sins of all the church. He died for all of them. They were all placed on him. And so in that sense now, you are no longer guilty. But that's not the entire gospel. That's true. And it's beautiful but if you stop there, you're missing so much. That's only one imputation. Your sin being placed on Christ. But the other part of imputation, of double imputation, is that Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. So he takes your sin and you take his righteousness. God looks at you and doesn't just see the absence of sin. Do you understand that? He doesn't just see the absence of sin in your life. He sees the righteousness of his son. 
And one way to look at this would be, maybe perhaps you've, ever, you've overdrawn the balance on your bank account. Maybe you open up your bank account and you see negative 26 cents. Maybe negative thousands of dollars. And Jesus comes along and he says, I'll take your debt. And you look back, that's, that's single imputation. He takes your debt. And now when you look at your bank account, what does it say? Zero dollars. That's a lot better than thousands of dollars in the hole. But double imputation says that not, does, not only does Jesus take your debt and pay for it, but he gives you his righteousness. And so instead, you don't just see an empty bank account. You don't see a negative bank account. Now you see a bank account with millions, with millions and millions of dollars in it. Jesus looks at you and he says, your clothes are filthy, mine are spotless. Let me take your filthy clothes and I'll give you my holy, spotless clothes. Do you see the inequity there? It's not fair, it's not a deal, it's not a good trade for Jesus. It might seem like the decent kind of a thing to do, right? Well, Jesus, is just, that just talks about how decent the guy is, right? Wow, I mean, that he would, that's, that's incredible. I mean, to just be walking down the road and see some poor, innocent, humble victim in need of clean clothes, and Jesus is like, well, I'll just swap you out. That'll be good, right? That's not what's taking place, too. You see, these, this trade, who are the parties? Well, you have Jesus, who is righteous, and you have you, who is unrighteous. Speaking of the unrighteousness that we have, Romans chapter 5, verses 6, six through 8. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you understand that? Christ died at the right time when we were weak, he died for the ungodly. We weren't like kind of getting godly, but we just needed some help. We were ungodly. And Christ died for us. Verse 7 goes on. This argument is, is chased down. For, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person. It's hard to find somebody that would be like, hey, I'm going to die. I'll trade my life for yours if they're a righteous person. It goes on. But perhaps, though, somebody, I don't know who, but some crazy person might die for a good person. Not a righteous person, but they're good. They're decent. Maybe somebody would die for that person. I don't know. But really to set this contrast up so it's incredibly clear, verse 8 shows up and says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see the inequity here. We were rebels against him, and he sent his son. And so what, is, what do we see Christ doing? Well, he, he engages pain. He doesn't shirk away from it. Coming to earth wasn't an exploratory mission. Oh, this will be fun. I'll take some pictures, send them back to the Father. This will be great. No, he came to die. Mark 10, 45, he came to, to seek and to say, or uh, sorry, to, to serve and not be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25, what does it say? For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. You've been called to suffer, why? Because Christ suffered for you. Leaving you as an example so that you might follow in his steps, experiencing, or embracing pain when required because of obedience and love. Embracing those who turn against you. Why? So that you might follow in his steps. That's what he did. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Never lied, never did anything wrong. In fact, even to the point, verse 23 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was abandoned, he did not abandon. Isn't that how we do it? Somebody takes our sippy cup, we scratch their back, right? You can tell I've got toddlers in the house. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, which is the Father. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Check this out. By his wounds, you have been healed. Verse 25, for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 to 25. If you jump into the next chapter, 
Peter kind of comes to the end of this argument there and kind of to a point in a sense in verse 8. He says, finally, all of you, speaking to the church, all of you have unity of mind. How can we have unity of mind? We've all hurt each other. We've, 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 we've talked bad about each other. We've made commitments and we've not followed through. We've let each other down. How can we do that? How can we really have unity of mind? We look differently at all the things politically. How are we to have this? Well, we're to have unity of mind. We're to have sympathy one for the other. We're to have brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. How does that actually play out in our lives? Well, with Christ in mind, he says, verse 9, do not repay evil for evil. Do not repay reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for this is you who were called, that you may obtain a blessing. What is Peter making clear for us this morning? That we're to look at the life of Christ and we're to see he embraced the deserter. He embraced the, embraced the offender. What should we do? Should we do any less? Absolutely not. We too should embrace the offender. Listen, Jesus was willing to engage on behalf of those who would abandon him. He loved them. He embraced the pain. He embraced the deserter. What about you? Just take a moment and think about your own life. This has been convicting for me. I'll ask you the same questions that I asked myself. Are you willing to serve others even when they haven't earned it? We love to serve people when they earned it, right? When they deserve it, we're willing to serve them. Are you willing to serve others when they don't, when they haven't earned it? Did they really deserve to be... You think of the action as they're running away, Jesus is running in... And their act of running was deserting him. And so why should he press in when they're running? Why was he pressing in? He was pressing in to die for their sins. To stamp out the, the, the serpent himself. Are you willing to serve others when they haven't earned it? When they haven't served you? How about this? Are you willing to love those who do not love you? Are you willing to love those who do not love you? Jesus was. And Jesus has called us to love people who have not loved us. And how about this one? Are you able to forgive those who neither deserve it, neither have they asked for it? Now, I'm not saying we should, we should forgive everybody who's ever sinned against us, whether they ask it or not. It's really kind of impossible to, to do that, really. You can't really ask, you, if somebody doesn't ask you for forgiveness, you can't give them forgiveness. But are you willing to do that? Jesus is. Are you? Even though they don't deserve it, are you willing to forgive those who have sinned against you? thinking of Jesus and what he's called you to do, consider Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 46 and 47. One of my sons brought this up in our D group this weekend. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? This morning, as we think of the life of Christ, as we think of the love that he has for the church, consider what he's done for us. Well, he's, in, he's engaged pain for the sake of obedience, for the sake of love. He's engaged pain. He's not shirked away from it. Neither should we. Thank God that he has done that for you, and go and do likewise. And second, we should embrace the deserter. What I mean by that is the one who doesn't earn it, the one who doesn't deserve to be loved or served or cared about. The one who's wronged us in big ways and small ways. I can say this, if it were not for Jesus taking our sinfulness and giving us his righteousness. If it, if it were not for the Holy Spirit empowering us day by day, continually conforming us into the image of Christ, we would be without hope. We love comfort more than anything as a, as a people. We love pleasure above all else. But when we are faithless, when we are faithless, he is faithful. 
When we run away, and we should run to, he runs to. And what do we, what do we kind of land on again this morning? It's the same idea that we've been kind of seeing. The, the idea that Mark wants us to, to be confident in, and that is that Jesus is the hero. If you look at the gospel, if you look at any of the gospels, you're going to walk away with this idea that Jesus is the hero. Just as the scriptures foretold, when everyone else is running away from danger, the Messiah runs to Jesus is the hero. Let's pray.